All right. Welcome back to the Probably Offensive Podcast. It's Saturday again, and, uh, well, this I would say sorry if you're offended, but, uh, well, it's it's our Saturday recording session. Quotes. <laughs> okay. Yeah, we're just lazy. It's it's actually Sunday. <laughs> the, the jig is up, Mikey. Good job. But Damn. Yeah, the podcast where you'll probably be offended, and uh, hopefully we can do our job on that one. But we got some some interesting things to talk about this week and in the world that keeps on giving as far as interesting and seemingly endless news. So, uh, all right, Mike, take it away for the first one. All right. So uh, this story came to me last night. Um, I was laying there in bed, uh, shit posting before I fall asleep, like always on parlor. And I ran across a story uh, where in Germany they are uh, using water cannons on protesters who are uh, doing anti-lockdown protests. And I was like, that's so strange. Like, because that, that immediately makes me think of uh, like the civil rights era. Um, you know, using water cannons on people, that's... I, I would consider that uh, relatively extreme. Um, I don't think it's warranted. Um, but I, I, I saw that and I thought immediately that this is something I got to talk about. Do I really care about Germany? I mean, sort of, kind of. You know, they're, they're an ally of ours. Um, That's finally paying their fair share. Absolutely. Thank you, Trump. Um, but I, I, I care about injustices anywhere. And, uh, I think this is something interesting to talk about because I haven't seen very much going on about this. Um, so I just, you know, figured we, we could, uh, we could cover this. So, uh, we'll just go into the article here and this, this is pulled from the Associated Press, by the way, on Fox News. Uh, So Germany protesters clash with police amid government coronavirus restrictions. Uh, So critics say lockdown laws give the government too much power. Um, German police fired water cannons Wednesday at demonstrators protesting coronavirus restrictions in Berlin's government district after crowds ignored calls to wear masks and keep their distance from one another in line with pandemic regulations. As the cannons soaked protesters outside the landmark Brandenburg Gate, police in riot gear moved through the crowd carrying away some participants. Some demonstrators threw fireworks and flares in response as police helicopters uh, hovered overhead. So I'm going to go ahead and interject right here. I get that people are upset. I really do understand it. But you cannot be violent. Like. There are courts. Um, there, there are other ways to get your point across than throwing fireworks and flares. Like somebody's going to get hurt doing some of that kind of stuff, and that just takes away the legitimacy of what you're doing. Yeah, I don't think people understand the way to properly pro- like protest in this in this manner. I mean, it's almost think of it like like biblically. Like, I mean, look at you know the 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 biggest peaceful protester you've ever seen. I mean, Jesus was essentially a peaceful protester when you think about it. I mean, you sit here and you take what they're giving to you, but you don't back down. That's what made that so powerful. Is I mean, they, I mean, apparently they crucified the guy, and uh, 
he wasn't giving up. So you sit here and I mean, I'm not encouraging people to take like physical abuse from the police, go fight that in court. And if you see somebody being abused by somebody, stand up for them. But you sit here, you are nonviolent. And if they start utilizing violence, what just makes them look bad? Yeah. Um, I just think violence is not the, I don't think it's the answer. Uh, violence should be reserved for um, when somebody slaps your wife on the butt. That's that's when violence is appropriate. <laughs> I look the the chivalrous in me says absolutely. The realist in me says no. But I I, I get it. it it's it, it it it's it's a pain. It, it that's a fine line. Um, but that's not also not the situation that we're talking about here. Um, so kind of to get us back into this article real quick. Um, so the protests, uh, they, the protests came as German lawmakers opened debate on a bill that will provide the legal underpinning for the government to issue social, uh, social distancing rules, require masks in public and close stores and other venues to slow the spread of the virus. While such measures are supported by most people in Germany, a vocal minority has staged regular rallies around the country arguing that the restrictions are unconstitutional. So the way I understand it, um, I don't really think this is a vocal minority. Um, now, I don't have 100% uh, pr- uh, proof necessarily or evidence of, of how big this crowd size was, but I was seeing estimates in tens of thousands to possibly 100,000 people in the streets of Berlin, uh, protesting. Um, I get that that might technically be a minority of the country. Um, but that is a lot of people. And, you know, I think everyone I think every country should adopt a constitution much like the U S you need to have the right to protest. Um, so I think, I think by calling it a vocal minority right here, I think what they're trying to do is they're trying to uh, they're stifling it. De- they're trying to delegitimize it. They're trying to say, "Oh, this is just a minority, and they're just vocal, so like you don't really have to worry about them." But you know, when your rights are being trampled upon, you have to make a stand. It doesn't matter how or why, but like you, you really need to because when the government takes an inch, they will never give it back ever the government keeps them and then it eventually over time all those inches add up to a mile and the government will never cede that ground unless you stand up for yourself so i have great respect for these people in germany who are standing up to their government but please for the love of god you know don't be violent um so i'm just gonna touch back into this article real quick so uh the measures are expected to pass both the lower and then upper house of parliament and be quickly signed by germany's president uh that's angela merkel by the way uh for anyone not knowing um so authorities had earlier banned a series of protests directly outside the parliament building due to security concerns and fencing was put up around a wide area including the Bundestag and nearby parliamentary offices, the federal chancellery and the presidential residence and offices. Outside the metal cordons, 
protesters gathered early Wednesday by the Brandenburg Gate and on streets and bridges, the demonstrators came from all walks of life, ranging from the far left to the far right, while also including families, students, and others. We want our lives back, read one sign carried by protesters. Another said, put banks under surveillance, not citizens. One demonstrator held a flag with a picture of outgoing U.S. President Donald Trump. Uh, full stop. That is not necessarily true at this point in time. The election is not over. Uh, just wanted to throw that in there. Um, but back to the article. Uh, in an image invoking the right-wing conspiracy theory, QAnon, while, other, while another had a placard showing top German virologist Christ, Christian Drosten in prison garb with the word guilty. Uh, German foreign minister Heiko Maas reacted sharply to the accusation from some protesters that the measures were akin to the 1933 Enabling Act, which allowed the Nazis to enact laws without parliamentary approval. Everyone naturally has the right to criticize the measures. Our democracy thrives through the exchange of different opinions, he wrote on Twitter. But whoever relativizes or trivializes the Holocaust has learned nothing from our history. Um, and this is where I think he's wrong. Um, is this just dominoes falling over? Could be. Is this just a coincidence? Could be. Um, but I think... I think to say that these people don't know anything about history, I think that's uh, really misguided. Um, these people obviously know history, otherwise they wouldn't be comparing it. They see these similarities, and they see that the government is attempting to seize power in a way that they don't like. And the only way that you stop another Nazi Germany from rising is to put the halt on excessive government overreach. What's your take so far? Um, I was actually just kind of bracing myself on the, uh, the constitution of Germany, because um, I wasn't really familiar, so I was just doing kind of a quick and dirty. But uh, it's actually not the constitution, it's uh, basic laws of Germany. But uh, it says right here, in uh, Article 8, freedom of assembly, much like our constitution, as long as you peaceably are assembling, you are protected under their basic laws. And uh, that's why it's really important for these people to understand that don't resort to violence no matter how much you're provoked. Because as long as you're doing it peacefully, you're protected under the law and you are right. So I understand that it's it's really, uh, I don't know, it's, it's, it's just really frustrating that, that governments are trying to take this into their own hands and force people to do what they think is right. Whenever no one really knows what is right in this situation. I mean, we, we haven't been in this situation in our lifetimes. I don't think anyone's in power right now that lived through the Spanish flu besides Nancy Pelosi. And uh, that's I good. Just, I just I just think that no one has a clue and that less freedom is not the solution for a problem like this that was arisen by nature. Less freedom is never going to be the solution. I mean, especially here in America, we're based on freedoms. Uh, and I don't understand why people are voting to give up some of their freedoms, but that's that's for another another topic. But I mean, as far as Germany goes, I'm right there with you. If I was in Germany and they were locking down like this, which we're starting to lock down on the US too, so look for that later. But 
I mean, honestly, I'd I'd be I'd be yelling and screaming and throwing a fit too because it's just personal freedom. Like we have it, so why are you trying to take it away? Um, and if you look at the evidence as far as you know this virus and most viruses in general, uh, once the problem has reached this many people and this many people have been infected, you shutting down a country is is very very unlikely to to stop this thing unless you can lock down the entire world because as soon as you open back up what's to stop somebody who's infected from another country bringing it back over and starting it all over again like it takes one ember to start a forest fire so that's that's not the solution herd immunity is the best solution we got going right now so they really just need to wisen up a little bit and realize that uh, spraying their citizens with water cannons, which I don't think is that bad, to be honest. They could be doing way worse. I feel like pepper spray is a little more unforgiving, and CS gas is a little more unforgiving. But uh, I still don't think that's necessary. Yeah, um, I totally agree. So uh, to just jump back into this article to uh, finish this out, just to provide the rest of the context here. So uh, a demonstration earlier this month uh, in the eastern city of Leipzig ended in chaos when thousands of protesters defied police orders to wear masks and later to disperse. Some participants attacked police officers and journalists. I'm going to stress again here real quick. Please, people, do not attack others it delegitimizes your position. This is not the way you need to go about it. You know, peacefully protest all day, every day. That is perfectly within your rights. But the moment you start getting violent, you're you're changing the narrative. The, the other side wants you to get violent because then they can use that as an excuse to crack down on you. So just be careful uh, with, with, with things like this. Uh, but back in here. So local authorities were criticized for acting too slowly and not forcefully enough to break up the crowd in Leipzig, allowing the situation to get out of control. Berlin police said they had given out multiple citations already Wednesday for violating mask wearing regulations, but that their appeals for people to wear protective gear and to keep their distance from one another were largely <clears throat> being ignored. Uh, police said the order had now been given to detain people not following the regulations. If that does not help, the only course that remains is to disperse the gathering, police said on Twitter. Germany, which has been praised for its handling of the first wave of the virus, has recently seen a sharp uptick in numbers of new infections and is now midway through a second partial lockdown meant to try to slow the, uh, the spread. Overall, the country has seen 833,000 coronavirus cases and more than 13,000 virus-confirmed deaths in the pandemic, a death toll one-fourth that of Britain's. Um, I'm not really sure why they would compare it to Britain or why people would compare uh, countries to other countries. Um, Every country is different. Every country has its own kind of thing. Um, But just to... uh, just to kind of uh, play off of this article a little bit more, um, while I was researching for this, I found that uh, Business Insider says that QAnon has become a powerful force in Germany, helping to drive Europe's biggest uh, anti-lockdown movement. Um, 
I'll be honest with you completely. I don't know much about QAnon. I don't really care about QAnon. Um, it seems like a conspiracy theory that doesn't necessarily have much going for it. Like, but I, I haven't really looked into it, so I can't elaborate on it too much. But whenever I see someone throwing around this, you know, QAnon this, QAnon that, or saying that this is driven by QAnon, I think all they're doing is really just trying to delegitimize these things. Um, so this article is basically going to uh, really just get uh, back into sort of what we just talked about. So I don't really see the point in uh, in going over this this one as well. Um, but I think it's it, it's important to understand that the government and the people who are in cahoots with the uh, establishment elites, they will attempt to lock down again, and they will use anything to delegitimize the anti-lockdown protesters. You know, this this is what's coming to America, you know, and this is already happening. So you've been warned like this, this is going to happen. So Preston, what do you think? <laughs> I'm just not for lockdowns. I, I don't care what country you are. I don't care what's going on. I mean, short of if we have, you know, a virus out there that's, I don't know, like killing people that you, you know, via, an extremely aggressive uh, symptom path, and it's it's you know just out of control. I I don't see like even then it's 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 hard for me to see a reason that telling people to sit in their homes would do any good whenever people, a, you know the majority may listen, but there's always going to be that population that's not going to listen. You're never going to get over that one, and b. I think it's everyone's right to to make their own stupid decisions. Like if you want to make a dumb decision, you 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 can make your dumb decision. That's 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 not for the government to to tell you. I mean, kind of like people who say that the government should uh should regulate or like tax or tell or ban uh like unhealthy food because it's causing obesity and putting a strain on the medical system. I mean, I'm a health nut, and I'm I'm even saying that's dumb. Because if you want to eat a Big Mac and wash it down with a friggin' thousand calorie soft drink, dude, go for it. You're 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 you. I'm not you. Who am I to tell you what to do? So, and especially the government. I think the government has no place in telling me what I can or can't do. Uh, the closer down to local government you get, I think it gets a little better. So I think most things should be handled by local government. Like if our mayor or somebody was to say lockdown, it'd be a little more reasonable that we could go and talk to them and we could have discussions in your in your local area. But this is what happens whenever you have government telling you, no, you all can't leave your houses. No, you're going to lose your business because you can't do business now. Um, and we're going we're gonna to do this because we think it may help. Uh, the government knows just about as much about all this as we do. So... That's why you're getting rioting. I don't know why they're surprised that people are attacking their police officers. People don't do that, by the way. They're just people. They're doing their job. Um, 
it's it's just shocking to me that it's shocking to them and i don't get it yeah um if anything it just displays the clear amount of cognitive dissonance um it's like the uh surprised pikachu meme government locks down people aren't happy government <gasps> surprise pikachu like no shit sherlock um but i guess to uh to go ahead and wrap this topic up um i I swear to you, I, I will figure out which of the founding fathers said this, but somebody said um, those who would trade liberty for safety deserve neither. Something to that effect. I thought it was and Ben Franklin that said that. Was it? I'm not. I'm not 100% sure, and I don't really feel like looking it up at this exact moment in time. But uh, I will find out, and I will. I will get that quote proper. But that's the gist of it. Um, and yeah, it, was, it was Ben Franklin. Was it? Okay. Yeah. So Ben Franklin said that. Do you, do you have the actual quote? Um, those who would give up essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. Yeah, so essentially what I said. Um, and, you know, we here in America, we love freedom. Freedom is the best damn thing in the world. It tastes so good. Yeah. It does. Are you free this weekend? Boy, I'm free every day. Um... And that, that's the great thing about America, you know? Your but, birds agree. <laughs> well, they're, they're, they're happy little merps right now. So I think what, what we need to be careful of, the governments of the world have become addicted to these lockdowns. It is an authoritarian power grab by the government. These lockdowns do not need to be happening. The World Health Organization, uh, you know, as, as annoying as they are, and is in the bag for China as they might be. They have even come out and said that lockdown should be used as an absolute last resort. You should not be destroying your economy to stop the spread of this virus or just try to slow the spread. The cure cannot be worse than the disease people. Um, and that's all I have to say on the topic. I mean, you see how much havoc that it's wreaking on or that it wreaks on our economy uh, just from shutting down for that, you know, what just a you know bit of time it wasn't a small bit of time but it was it wasn't the worst they could have done um and you see just the devastation that 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 rolled out i mean there's businesses that shut down that are never to open again people lost tons of money they could have you know that that could have been realized um it just left people in a bad spot and people needed that stimulus that stimulus check i mean it wasn't that big and i don't agree with doing a lot of government payments because that gets people, you know, relying on the government, and we don't need that. The government doesn't want that, no matter how much that you guys, you know, in government and people, just the citizens, think it'd be great. Uh, nobody wants that in the long run. It's just not a good place to be, uh, you know, back to trading, trading your freedoms for security. Not a good idea. Uh, I'm just hoping that once we get actual feasible vaccines going and in production that this may that, that these conversations may take a turn to the more logical and that people will stop fear-mongering and and it will get a little better and rational heads will will prevail very well put um if you've listened if you've listened this far like comment subscribe thank you welcome everyone uh segment two of our weekly podcast and we are going to go straight into this. Mike, take it away. All right. So uh, this one actually hits kind of close to home. Um, 
Preston and I, uh, we both live in Kentucky, and uh, this uh, th- this this affects us. Um, I'm sorry. And... Should I preface our podcast with "Howdy, y'all," just to make people aware? Howdy, y'all. Well, we're we're not like Kentucky over here. Not oh, not like yeah. Eastern Kentucky. Eastern Kentucky's pretty bad, but Western Kentucky's pretty good. This is where you got the good people. <laughs> A little biased <laughs> over here, but look, I'm, anyone. Anyone from Eastern Kentucky, if you just got your feelings hurt, get over it. We warned you. Um, but anyways, I, I want to jump right into this because, uh, like I said, this does hit uh, very close to home. Um, so Kentucky Attorney General Dave uh, Daniel Cameron joins lawsuit to stop the banning of in-person instruction at religious schools. So uh, this is from... Uh, WKYT stands for Kentucky. Um, So uh, we'll just jump right in right here. So in a news release Friday evening, Attorney General Daniel Cameron announced that he was joining a lawsuit brought by Danville Christian Academy asking the court to put a temporary restraining order on Governor Bashir's banning of in-person instruction at religious schools. Uh, So I do want to preface this real quick. Um, The ban, uh, well, the Governor Bashir... Uh, who is the governor of Kentucky, obviously. You know, if, if you can't put two and two together, I'm sorry for you. Um, he has recently uh, come out and uh, banned in-person learning again uh, at pretty much every school in the state, uh, if they're in like a red red line county. And I'm not sure how they necessarily uh, come up with that metric. I'm not um, even sure if they, they understand that. So Who, who knows? Um, but... The, this ban on in-person learning, I want to, I want to stress, this doesn't just affect religious schools. Uh, my little sisters go to public school, and they cannot go to school right now. Um, I think the ban is until uh, January seventh or or the fourth or something like that. Um, like it's a very long time. So, and my little sisters do not like in-person learning very much. Or not in. I'm sorry, they don't Virtual. like online learning. Uh, it's because it's very difficult to, to follow along. Uh, my sisters do better in an actual classroom environment. And, you know, I care about my little sisters, uh, which is partially why I care about what's going on here. Um, but to, to bring this back on track, um, this isn't just about religious schools. This does affect public schools as well. So back into the article here. Uh, so the lawsuit Uh, filed in the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of Kentucky, says the governor's executive orders that include the halting of in-person instruction at religious schools in the state violate the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, Kentucky's equivalent constitutional guarantees, and the Commonwealth's Religious Freedom and Restoration Act. The governor's school closure order prohibits religious organizations from educating children consistent with and according to their faith, said Attorney General Cameron. The ability to provide and receive a private religious education is a core part of the freedoms protected by the First Amendment. Religiously affiliated schools that follow recommended social distancing guidelines should be allowed to remain open. In August, we issued guidance stating that a closure of religious schools during the pandemic would risk violating the U.S. Constitution and state law. The governor dismissed the guidance and he has now forced us to bring a lawsuit to protect the constitutional rights of Kentuckians. So um, 
full disclosure, um, we both went to a private religious school. Um, do I really think that this violates the First Amendment rights? Uh, I mean, I guess it could. It, it, it's an interesting argument for sure. Um, but I think where you have to uh, be careful with something like this is a lot of private schools, um, especially here in Kentucky, uh, when we're talking like uh, religious schools, um, they might not have the money to necessarily provide students with laptops or things of that nature. Uh, my little sisters who go to a public school, they have school-issued laptops. So when they're sent home to do learning from home, they have school-issued laptops that they can use to access the internet um, and, and do all their coursework. Um, not everybody owns a computer, believe it or not. Not everyone has even internet, surprisingly. So by forcing these remote learnings, um, while I can understand the First Amendment argument here, um, I think it's also kind of missing some other aspects of this. Um, a lot of parents, for better or for worse, use school as kind of like a daycare. There's a lot of parents that work during the day and they can't drop their kids off at school and, you know, go about their day and work, you know. So there's there's a lot of issues that come from uh, closing down schools. For instance, my little sisters, um, and I, I'm, I'm going to use them repeatedly, I guess, throughout this segment. Uh, but that's just because this is how I can relate to this story, and this is why it matters to me. Um, they're 15 and 12 years old apiece. They are at a very social age. And by removing them from school, it's really putting a hamper on their social life. Now, I'm not necessarily trying to say that somebody's social life is more important than safety. I think that's a, a different argument for a different day. But on the same token, my sisters, uh, you know, people need social interaction. And when you lock people up in their homes and you tell students that they can't go to school, well, now they can't see their friends. Now they can't socialize. Now they're losing out on that in-person learning. And I'm not going to say that public school is perfect. I, I think we definitely need education reform in this country. Um, so stick a pin in that one and we'll get to that another day. But with something like this, you are depriving kids of a better learning environment, most likely, and you're also providing, uh, uh, depriving them of their social growth. What's going to happen to these students when they spend months at a time at home, sitting in their house all alone, participating in an online class? Well, they're going to get depressed. Their grades are going to slip. Uh, I believe in our county, uh, we just had a report come out that showed 65% of all middle schoolers in the county that we live in are failing at least one class now because of the online learning that's being forced on them. I don't think this is a good idea. I think you need to send kids back to school. You can do it safely. We, we've proven that, you know, and kids are so incredibly unlikely to die from this kind of thing. But, you know, People, you, you have a better chance of dying getting in your car driving to work than you do of die, dying from COVID, most likely. You know, it's... This is 
you, you have to pick and choose your battles. And I don't think students going home and learning from home, I don't think that's the correct option right here. What are your thoughts on this? I've got quite a quite a broad perspective here. Um, just for full disclosure, yeah, I, I mean, I did go to private school, like, like Mikey said, um, went to a Catholic school for all of my education. Um, but I also have a sister who, uh, who is a teacher. She, she, you know, specializes in early elementary education. And, uh, during this entire pandemic, I actually was really trying to keep in touch with her to, to just to see what the impacts were going to be, you know, with, with children and schooling and how this was going to go. Cause I was always kind of, uh, I don't know, like, like an evangelist for people doing, you know, online courses and stuff. Cause in college I liked online course. I thought, thought, I thought it was great, but I never took the time to think about how it would affect, you know, younger kids, you know, who weren't socialized yet and weren't fully developed in, in all those aspects not saying that college kids are perfect or even developed enough in every aspect because, you know, let's all be honest, in college we were all pretty bad. But, um, so from talking to her through this entire pandemic, she she was optimistic at first, but it has really shown the ugly side um, of, of what all this is going to manifest. For one, she also deals with uh, both city city children and some very, very rural children. Um, as you probably would, would think, the, the rural children, uh, a lot of them didn't have access to good internet. You know, they had to work with their parents to try to get them access to internet or figure out places they could go to, to, to do their homework, which was a challenge. Um, also, as, as you were saying, that a lot of parents use the, the school system as kind of like a daycare, which isn't a bad thing, by the way. I mean, it's, I'm, not, I'm not saying you said it was, but it was just, some people think it's a bad thing. No, it's, it's not a bad thing to use the education system like that. But some kids actually do need that mentally. Okay, some people don't come from a very good home. Um, some people are, are, are struggling at home. And it really starts to show whenever, you know, you get someone like my sister who's teaching these kids and gets to see them every day at home. And they get to kind of inadvertently be a part of these people's home lives and some of it's not pretty at all and they don't have the escape anymore to go to school and be with their friends or talk to a teacher or have an outlet or something and it's it's really troubling to like to hear the reports at some of the things that these children have, have had to go, like go through i mean i'm not going to give personal examples or anything because most of them are actually pretty personal but I mean, you know, just in general, could be abusive parents, could be, you know, um, feelings of depression. And these are kids that are, you know, not old enough, I would think, to to want to play on the depression thing for attention. I mean, we're talking, you know, first, second grade. And these kids are, are are starting to struggle now. It's it's been long enough. And I, I this this really went to show me that in person education is is critical, especially at these younger ages. Just because, I mean, t trying to trying to hold attention, even at the lowest base, for children of this age, you know, half of them have ADD, or are just hyper in general, and trying to keep these kids' attention is, is next to impossible via a screen whenever you're surrounded by your home. And also, I don't know if any of you have ever experienced, uh, well, I guess now you probably experience the difference between working from home 
and working in an office. It's also goes for, you know, people who have home gyms or say you're going to work out at home instead of going to the gym. You need a separation from home life where you relax and from the life outside and the activity you're doing. When we used to go to school as kids, you go to school, it flips on the switch of, oh, now I'm with my friends. I'm going to be a little more social. I'm here to learn some things. I got to do work. It flips that switch rather seamlessly. But when you're at home, that's half the reason that most kids don't do homework is because they get home and it's home. You don't want to do homework. You don't want to do schoolwork at home. It's, it's, it's pretty common. So um, this entire situation is, is just detrimental. Uh, in my opinion, and I would love to see some studies coming out on this, uh, which I'm, I'm sure people are doing, but I want some actual scientific studies and some evidence to come out just regarding this entire subject because this really does need to be looked into because the, these are our, you know, the future population. We, we, we need to understand what's happening to them and what impacts that should happen. And I don't think these, these uh, you know, decisions should be made light, you know, very lightly, especially considering the absurdly low fatality rate that, that COVID or the virus, I don't know if you're afraid of saying it, has had on, um, on, on our children and people, you know, younger than, what is it, 20, 21, uh, 18? I, I can't remember. I'm not sure. But it's, it's an absurdly low number. And yes, I understand, you know, little Timmy could give it to his grandma, but... You know, why don't you just have Timmy not be breathing on his grandma, you know? So yeah. just be smart about it. But yeah, this is this is absurd and they're making these decisions way too rashly and just throwing these decisions out there way too haphazardly. They need to ask the teachers and they need to be way more involved in this. I I mean I totally agree. Um I do want to uh, jump back into this article. Uh, there's not a whole lot left, but I, I do just want to go ahead and finish this out so uh, everyone has all the context here in case you're not already reading it yourself. Um, but uh, we'll pick back up right here. So uh, many schools have already spent money in order to comply with health guidelines and safely stay open. Danville Christian Academy, uh, which, by the way, that's the Christian Academy that, that they're the ones this lawsuit's from that... Uh, Daniel Cameron has joined on to. Um, they have spent between $20,000 and $30,000 to operationalize a safety plan. The Boyle County Health Department even noted that the school is, quote-unquote, doing it right. Uh, we continue to hear that the classroom is the safest place for our children during this pandemic, said House Speaker Pro Tempore David Mead. Our schools have done a tremendous job planning and implementing safety procedures in our school systems and a phenomenal job of keeping our children safe. As we continue to make decisions that will affect hundreds of thousands of Kentucky children and their families, we need to check our emotions at the door and make decisions based on credible fact. Uh, this guy gets it. I mean, that's exactly it. Here, here, um, sir. Yeah. So the governor's orders caused confusion among some who don't understand how schools are unsafe, but venues can continue to operate with up to 25 people per room, the same size as many classrooms across Kentucky. Um, just as a quick aside, I think I want to say most of my classes in high school were about 20 to 25 people. 
no more than 30 to 31 people. That that was probably the maximum I ever saw in any of our classes. But then again, we were a Catholic school and our graduating class was like... 120? Something like that. Yeah, our, our, I mean, our school wasn't big. There were like 400, maybe 500 people there total. Uh, students, that is. Um, so, I mean, we weren't in a very big, big area. We're not in a big area and we're not in a big school either. But, you know, you, you kind of get the idea there. Um, but just to finish this article off, so... Uh, this is a quote. If it is safe for individuals to gather in venues, shop in stores, and work in office environments, why is it unsafe for Kentucky schools to continue in-person operations while applying the same safety protocols, said Attorney General Cameron. The governor's orders are arbitrary and inconsistent when it comes to school closures in Kentucky. We urge the governor to follow the legal opinions issued earlier this year by multiple federal judges and allow religious schools to continue in-person instruction while following recommended health guidelines. So uh, th th this is also uh, basically the same thing. Um, I don't necessarily dislike Andy Bashir. Um, I don't think he's a bad governor, but I don't necessarily think he's a good one either. Um, but I think Bashir is, uh, I really do just think he's making the wrong decision. Um, I respect the guy for wanting to do something. I just think he's doing the wrong thing. Um, you know, we, we can have our, uh, we can have our disagreements about all that kind of stuff, but, uh, um, I guess in closing to, to bring this, uh, to bring this full circle, um, we are doing things to our society and we don't, we don't know 10 years from now, the consequences of what we are doing today. We have possibly socially stunted children. Some of these children uh, might have severe issues trying to socialize in the future because they were forced into online learning. And I don't know what's going to happen 10 years from now as a result as these children grow up. Um, will they get out of it? I don't know. Those studies aren't available we won't know the ramifications of this until it's already happening. So I think truly, I, I really do think that we have made the wrong decision. I think that the lockdowns must end. Um, I think this is a dangerous precedent going forward. And to reiterate my earlier point, when you give the government an inch, it keeps it and the government will take more and more and more until they're miles away and they will never cede that power unless somebody does something about it so i have a tremendous amount of respect for uh, attorney general daniel cameron for trying to stop this unconstitutional power grab by andy Bashir. and that's all i got i'm gonna draw a quick uh, parallel and contrast between uh kind of the adult side and the child side of this. Um, I don't think that we should address businesses and uh, just, you know, adults places of work with education systems. They, they should be treated as two separate things. So they are two separate things. They're dealing with two separate uh, populations and a lot of different variables. 
So um, that's why my opinion is going to kind of differ um, depending on which one you're talking about. But as far as my opinion for schools is, again, we've seen that, you know, this is hurting children and children are not equipped to, uh, to understand or deal with, uh, with this forced separation from other kids and from their kind of like a safer space of school and that environment for learning. Whereas adults, you know, we, I work for a company that has everyone working from home now and productivity has gone up immensely. And there's been, you know, studies and reports brought out there where a lot of companies are dealing with the same findings in that people are getting more work hours in, people are getting more effective hours done, more work is being done. And that's just kind of the difference between a fully formed adult and a child is that adults can be equipped to deal with this. A lot of them are just at home with their families. They spend most of their time with their families anyway. It's where they'd like to be. It saves them commute times. Whereas a child, it doesn't do these positive things for them. And not to mention, it takes away their ability to to, to socially grow. So it's not benefiting children the way it is adults. And that's why I think Mikey's right here and that we're making the wrong decision as a, as a you know society to close down schools um, and even to close down businesses to an extent, I think that, you know, again, people are, are allowed to make their own decisions, but these children have no say in what decisions being made. So I think we should have thought way, way harder about this and that, you know, schools should remain open provided they're taking the necessary steps to social distance and, and to do what they can. Um, and I think we'll find if we, if we start doing that, that the, the, the negative consequences will be a whole lot less severe than we think they will. Well put. Um, so if you've listened this far, again, like, comment, subscribe. That's all we got for this one. So we're back with our fourth installment of our weekly podcast. Uh, and now we are going to talk about something that is rather sad. Yeah. Um, so I'm not going to mince words here. This is a huge, huge loss for science. Um, the legendary Arecibo telescope will close forever, and scientists are reeling. Um, a new satellite image reveals the damage that shut down the facility, ending an era uh, in astronomical observations. So uh, there might be some of you that don't really understand the significance of this. So before I talk about what exactly is wrong with the Arecibo uh, Observatory, um, I want to talk about what it did. Um, I mean, this is kind of like what it looks like. So, uh, the Arecibo telescope was, uh, I mean, it, it, it is a very important piece of science. So I just want to talk about some of its research and discoveries so that, uh, you can kind of understand why, uh, this is such a huge loss for the scientific community. So, uh, let's get into it right here. So we've got, uh, many scientific discoveries were made with the observatory, on April 7, uh, 1964, soon after it began operating, Gordon Pettengill's team used it to determine that the rotation period of Mercury was not 88 days, as formerly thought, but only 59 days. In 1968, the discovery of the periodicity of the Crab Pulsar 
33 milliseconds by Loveloss and others provided the first solid evidence that neutron stars exists. Uh, in 1974, Hulson Taylor discovered the first binary pulsar, an accomplishment for which they later received the Nobel Prize in Physics. In 1982, the first millisecond pulsar was discovered by Donald C. Baker, uh, Sharon Navis, Kokanari, um, Carl Heels, Michael Davis, and uh, Miller Goss. Uh, sorry if I butchered those names. Um, I'm not good with names. Uh, so this object spins 642 times per second, and until the discovery of PSR J1748244 AD in 2005 was identified as the fastest spinning pulsar. In August 1989, the observatory directly imaged an asteroid for the first time in history. 4769 Castalia, the following year, Polish astronomer Alexander, I'm not even going to bother with that, made the discovery of pulsar PSR B1257 plus 12, uh, which later led him to discover its three orbiting planets. These were the first extrasolar planets discovered. In 1994, John Harmon used the Arecibo radio telescope to map the distribution of ice in the polar regions of Mercury. In January 2008, detection of prebiotic molecules, uh, methanamine and hydrogen cyanide, were reported from the observatory's radio spectroscopy measurement of the distant starburst galaxy ARP220. From January 2010 to February 2011, American astronomers Matthew Rout and Alexander... I'm not going to bother with that last name again. <laughs> ...detected bursts of radio emissions from the T6.5 uh, brown dwarf two-mass J1... That's a lot. And this was the first time that radio emission had been detected from a T-dwarf, which has methane absorption lines in its atmosphere. It is also the coolest brown dwarf at a temperature of 900 degrees Kelvin, which from which radio emission has been observed. The highly polarized and highly energetic radio bursts indicated that the object has a greater than 1.7 kilogram uh, kg, not kilogram, uh, strength magnetic field and magnetic activity similar to both the planet Jupiter and the sun. So, I mean, as you can see, like, this is, this has been done, like, this has been used for a lot of very important scientific discoveries. Um, it was also uh, used for the Arecibo message. Uh, so in 1974, the Arecibo message, an attempt to communicate with potential extraterrestrial life, uh, was transmitted from the radio telescope towards the globular cluster Messier 13, about 25,000 light years away. The 1,679-bit pattern of ones and zeros defined by a 23 by 73 pixel bitmap that included numbers, stick figures, chemical formula, and a crude image of a telescope. Um... I mean, that's just, that's cool. I mean, if you think about it, you know, 25,000 years from now, somebody somebody might pick up this message. And I could just imagine, they, they'd look at this and they'd be like, what the hell is this? <laughs> um, 
because obviously, I mean, that's there's not a lot going on in that. Um, obviously, they'll, uh, you know, you can kind of pick it apart and tell sort of what it what what it's trying to display, uh, <laughs> but it's it's not a very good image. Um, SETI and METI projects, so the search for extraterrestrial intelligence is a search for extraterrestrial life or advanced technologies. SETI aims to answer the question, are we alone in the universe? Um, I'm going to go ahead and jump in right here and just say, I don't think we are. Um, but I don't think at this point that we have definitive proof that anything else does exist, I will say. Uh, so jumping back in, by scanning the skies for transmissions from intelligent civilizations elsewhere in our galaxy, in comparison, METI, messaging to extraterrestrial intelligence, refers to the active search by transmitting messages. Arecibo is the source of data for the SETI at Home and AstroPulse distributed computing projects uh, put forward by the Space Science Laboratory at the University of California, Berkeley, and was used for the SETI Institute's Project Phoenix observations. The Einstein at Home distributed computing project has found more than 20 pulsars in Arecibo data. So, some other uses. Uh, terrestrial aeronomy experiments at Arecibo have included the Coqui 2 experiment, supported by NASA. The telescope also originally had military intelligence uses, uses uh, including locating Soviet radar installations by detecting their signals bouncing off of the moon. That's just so cool. Um, limited amateur radio operations have occurred using moon bounce or Earth-Moon-Earth communication in which radio signals aimed at the moon are reflected back to Earth. The first of these operations was on June 13, 13 to 14, uh, 1964, using the call KP4BPZ. A dozen or so two-way contacts were made on 144 and 432 megahertz. On July 3rd and 24th, 1965, KP4DPZ was again activated on 432 megahertz, making approximately 30 contacts on 432 megahertz. Uh, include uh, during the limited time slots available for these tests, a very wide band instrumentation recorder captured a large segment of the receiving bandwidth enabling later verification of other amateur station call signs. These were not two-way contacts. From April 16th to 18th, uh, 2010, again, the Arecibo Amateur Radio Club, KP4AO, conducted moon bounce activity using the antenna. On November 10th, 2013, the KP4AO Arecibo Amateur Radio Club conducted a 50-year commemorative activation, lasting seven hours on 14.250 megahertz, SSB without using the main dish antenna. So I hope that this kind of illustrates the uh, the scientific importance of something like this. Um, this. This telescope was pivotal to a lot of discoveries. I mean, they used this telescope to discover the first extraterrestrial planets. I mean, just how cool is that? That, that you can do this. Um, it's just so cool. And uh, some of you may notice this thing. Uh, this uh, there was a scene from a James Bond movie, was it? I think that took place uh, over the over the Arecibo dish. This also inspired a uh, rather iconic battlefield map 
from one of the former Battlefield games. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yes. Yeah, so uh, I, I hope that you that you will understand now, uh, anyone listening, the uh, the importance when I say that when this thing is closing forever, people are upset. Like, like this is bad. Um, so we'll just jump into this article now that I've given you all the uh, context. So one of astronomy's most renowned telescopes, the 305-meter-wide radio telescope at Arecibo, Puerto Rico, is permanently closing. Engineers cannot find a safe way to repair it after two cables supporting the structure suddenly and catastrophically broke, one in August and one in early November. It is the end of one of the most iconic and scientifically productive telescopes in the history of astronomy, and scientists are mourning its loss. Um, I'll skip the quotes because I don't particularly care um, but the Arecibo telescope, which was built in 1963, was the world's largest radio telescope for decades and has historical and modern importance in astronomy. It was a site from which astronomers sent an interstellar radio message in 1974, uh, in case any extraterrestrials might hear it, and where the first known extrasolar planet was discovered. So back to what I was saying there. Um, what do you think, Crescent? I mean, I think this is just absolutely, like, catastrophic to me at least like i'm not even as as uh deep into the i guess space exploration and astrological things as you are but it's that's just crazy that just these two instances months apart brought this thing down and it's had obviously a very long history and i mean this is almost I mean, I'm I'm not going to say it's irreplaceable, but I mean, that's just the the significance to this should not be understated to anyone. I mean, you just kind of touted some of its uh, some of its notable accomplishments, but you know, there's probably a lot more things that is done in its history. I mean, heck, it's what coming on sixty years old. I mean. Uh, it was, what was it built again? 63? So yeah, I mean, it's, it damn near made it to 60 years old. That's crazy. And this thing is massive. Oh yeah. Um, for people who don't know what a meter is, uh, a meter is, uh, you could call it about 40 inches. So 305 meters is, uh. Let's see. Let's do the math real quick. Divided by 12. This thing's about 1,000 feet wide, give or take a little bit. Um, this thing is huge. It's bigger than a football field, and it's a bloody telescope. So what's important to know is... Uh, I'm sorry, the birds are a little grumpy right now. Uh, they, they, they care about science, too. That, that's why they're angry. They're mourning. They are mourning. Um this is a radio telescope so this is not a traditional telescope with a lens and an aperture like that where you can see an image uh this actually receives radio waves uh and the what the reason that it's designed like this is it actually comes into this this is the aperture for this uh so everything every point of this telescope hits right in here it is designed in such a way that all of this, all of the light, all of the radio waves it gathers, 
they all go into this receiver. Uh, and that's where the science occurs right there. But I do want to talk about the actual damage that's that's caused this thing to uh, to have to be retired so suddenly. So the cables that broke helped support a 900-ton platform of science. That's scientific a big boy. Influence. That is. I, I don't really understand how big it is. Uh, I'd, I'd be interested in maybe doing more research on scales of things, but uh, not right now at least. So the first cable smashed panels at the edge of the dish, but the second tore huge gashes in the central portion of it. A high-resolution satellite image produced at nature's request by Planet, an Earth-observing company, shows the extent of the damage wrought by the second cable. The green of the vegetation below shows through large holes in the dish. A second photograph released this week by observatory officials also reveals a destruction. They are the only public glimpses of the damage to date. Uh, do they have these photos, I wonder? No, it doesn't look like they do. So let's see if we can find those real quick. Uh, so let's let's take a peek here. Oh, oh my. Oh, wow. That's worse than I thought. Yeah, I mean, so as you can see, this... It's destroyed. I mean, I... I wouldn't know how you could salvage something like this. Wow. I knew it was bad, but not that bad. Yeah, so they didn't, you know, they didn't just run into a, a speed bump and decide to give up. Yeah, so, uh... Let, let, let's continue here real quick. So if any more cables fail, which could happen at any time, the entire platform could crash into the dish uh, below. The U.S. National Science Foundation, which owns Arecibo Observatory, is working on plans to safely lower the platform down in a controlled fashion. But those plans will take weeks to develop, and there's no telling whether the platform might crash down uncontrollably in the meantime. Even attempts at stabilization or, test, or at testing the cables could result in accelerating the catastrophic failure. Uh, said Ralph Guam, uh, the NSF's head of astronomy, at a, ninth, at a, a November 19th media uh, briefing. So NSF decided to close the Arecibo dish permanently. This decision is not an easy one to make, but safety is the number one priority, said Sean Jones, head of NS NSF's Mathematical and Physical Science uh, Directorate. The closing is likely to come as a shock to the wider astronomical community. Losing the Arecibo Observatory would be a big loss for science, for planetary defense, and for Puerto Rico. Um, NSF officials insist that the cable failures came as a surprise after the first engineering team spotted a handful of broken wires on the second cable, which was more crucial to holding up the structure, but they did not see it as a major problem because the weight it was carrying was well within its design capacity. It was not seen as an immediate threat. Uh... Over the years, uh, external review committees have highlighted the ongoing need to maintain the telescope's aging cables. Uh, Zotterer said that maintenance had been completed according to schedule. Before this year, the last major cable problems at the observatory were in January 2014, when a magnitude 6.4 earthquake caused damage to another of the main cables, which engineers repaired. The aging structure had suffer has suffered other shocks in recent years, including Hurricane Maria in 2017 and a series of smaller earthquakes in January of this year. There is no estimate yet on the cost of decommissioning the telescope. So, I mean, rest in peace, Arecibo. 
it's it's sad it's really sad this is uh this is the end of uh a great piece of uh of scientific equipment i i would i would think that this is uh this would be like losing the hubble space telescope it's kind of how i th how i think of it um and hubble's been instrumental in uh expanding our understanding of the universe and what what actually is out there so you know if, if you're not interested in science a after this i don't know what to tell you like this is cool stuff people you know if we weren't fighting and killing each other imagine how far we could be you know so science is important and and this is going to be a great loss to the scientific community that will be felt for years to come. And uh, I'm greatly saddened by it. That's all I got to say. Kind of helps bring things into perspective on, you know, a lot of the times we focus on really piddly issues. And, you know, we have things like this that could have brought huge advancements down the line that just, you know, a couple, a couple scenarios happened, happened the wrong way, and now it's gone. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it is what it is though. You know, we just got to pick up the pieces and keep going. But, uh, if you've listened this far, uh, like comment, subscribe. Thanks for hanging out. Welcome back everybody to our third section this week. Uh, just based on the picture you're looking at right now, this is going to be some, some out there stuff. So Mikey, please explain to me why you're talking about astrology. So as I was doing my uh, looking around for news uh, to talk about, um, I, I think it's important to know that, uh, and if you've really listened to us at all uh, in the past, you know that we do care about uh, scientific uh, misinformation, scientific illiteracy, pseudoscience, all that kind of stuff. And I just happened to see astrology and I was like, man, ain't that some dumb stuff? So I just kind of wanted to talk about astrology. Um, now, mind you, I'm not necessarily here to debunk this or anything, um, but I do just want to kind of shed some light on, I guess, what it is and what I think about it. Um, I'm not going to lie. I'm going to preface this right now. I think astrology is pseudoscience. I don't believe in magic or anything like that. I don't believe that you can divine the future from human and earthly whatevers i don't i don't think it's possible now if we're talking something like divining the future by uh laplace's demon uh i think that's possible but that that would also presuppose that you believe the universe is predeterministic um that's a topic for another day but if you are interested please look up laplace's demon it is uh the thirty thousand foot overview is it is a demon that can calculate the position momenta and everything about everything in the universe at exactly the same moment like every second and if you know the position and momenta of everything you can predict what will happen next so if you believe the universe is predeterministic um if you were laplace's demon you could say what would happen tomorrow because you would know um so just it's just something interesting to think about. Um, 
but let's go ahead and jump in here real quick. So uh, this is on uh, the Encyclopedia Britannica's website. So, you know, this is this is about as authoritative of a source as you're going to get on this. Uh, but let's jump in. So astrology type of divination that involves the forecasting of earthly and human events through the observation and interpretation of the fixed stars, the sun, the moon, and the planets. Devotees believe that an understanding of the influence of the planets and stars on earthly affairs allows them to both predict and affect the destinies of individuals, groups, and nations. Though often regarded as a science throughout its history, astrology is widely, uh, widely considered today to be diametrically opposed to the findings and theories of modern Western science. Um, so astrology is a method of predicting mundane events based upon the assumption that the celestial bodies, particularly the planets and the stars considered in their arbitrary combinations or configurations called constellations in some way either determine or indicate changes in the sublunar world. The theoretical basis for this assumption lies historically in Hellenistic philosophy and radically distinguishes astrology from the celestial uh, amina uh, omens that were first categorized and cataloged in ancient Mesopotamia. Originally, astrologers presupposed a geocentric universe in which the planets, including the sun and moon, revolve in orbits whose centers are at or near the center of the Earth, and in which the stars are fixed upon a sphere with a finite radius whose center is also the center of the Earth. Later, the principles of Aristotelian uh, physics were adopted, according to which there is an absolute division between the eternal circular motions of the heavenly element and the limited linear motions of the four sublunar elements fire air water earth um avatar right <laughs> um special relations were believed to exist between particular celestial bodies and their varied motions configurations with each other and the processes of generation and decay apparent in the world of fire air water and earth these relations were sometimes regarded as so complex that no human mind could completely grasp them. Thus, the astrologer might be readily excused for any errors. A similar set of special relations was also assumed by those whose physics was more akin to that of the Greek philosopher Plato. For the Platonic astrologers, the element of fire was believed to extend throughout the celestial spheres, and they were more likely than the Aristotelians to believe in the possibility of divine intervention and the natural processes through celestial influences upon the earth, since they believed in the deity's creation of the celestial bodies themselves. Yeah, ain't that something, huh? Ain't Sounds, that like a bunch something. Of... Sounds like a bunch of gobbledygook. Um, word salad, as it were. Um... Sounds convenient. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, what what do you think so far? I mean, I'm sure you have some thoughts on astrology, and I'm sure you know kind of what it is already, and you knew before this, but still. I have never really read the uh, the you know Encyclopedia Britannica's uh, version of all this stuff, but, you know, it's in my head, 
listening to you read this, I was saying to myself, you know, this is about as plausible as, you know, most other things people come up with until, you know, they're proven. So, I mean, it just kind of seems like an unproven theory. So, I mean, if you take the, the necessary uh, leeway in your head to, you know, give it that space of error, you know, could be could be okay sounding, but then you get to the point where um, the unfathomability to humans, you know, just kind of leads to a very convenient scapegoat for why it could be wrong. And when, like, when you bake in fail-safes to why you could be wrong into your, into your theory and philosophies, that's when you lose me. It's because you're thinking ahead of time, this is so much crap that no one's going to believe it. And so you're like, I need an out. Let me just let me just write this in here. So that's to just, be determined. That's just you know exactly. It's like results may vary. Results may vary. Uh, either either zero or a hundred percent. Yeah. Um. So I I think. I think something like astrology is is certainly interesting on the surface, like. Uh, but it it just seems like any other uh, type of faith, I suppose you could say, um, because the issue with astrology is, um, I would ask that somebody who believes in this to make a prediction, um, predict something that will happen based upon the uh, the movement of the stars or whatever, you know. And then I'm also going to say, now, in the chance that your prediction is proven true, so you make a prediction, and it does come true, now I want you to describe to me the mechanism in which this works, uh, because that's what we're missing here. So they say that the stars and the celestial bodies affect uh, the natural world or what, where we see, where we live. And they can affect people and other things going on on our Earth. But just because you might be able to make a prediction that ends up ringing true doesn't speak to the validity of what you're doing. So in order for you to make a prediction, and it does come true, you have to be repeatedly able to make predictions and they repeatedly come true. Well, it's then scientific you... studies right there. It must be repeatable. Yes, uh, just because you make a prediction once and it just so happens to happen doesn't necessarily... That's not proof positive that you're correct. Um, we also need you to describe the mechanism uh, with how this works. Does this work via magic? Gravity? I, I mean, what what is the mechanism that causes astrology to work? What's your how secret do, sauce? Yeah, what what's the secret sauce? Tell me what the sauce is. And uh, I'm not asking for anime. <laughs> um, but I do want to go ahead and uh, just just finish this up real quick, uh, this, this last big uh, paragraph here. So, the role of the divine in astrological theory varies considerably. In its most rigorous aspect, astrology postulates a totally uh, mechanistic universe denying to the deity the possibility of intervention and to man that of free will as such it was vigorously attacked by orthodox christianity and islam for some however astrology is not an exact science like astronomy 
but merely indicates trends and directions that can be altered either by divine or by human will. In the interpretation of Bardensanes, a Syrian Christian scholar who has often been identified as a Gnostic, a believer in esoteric salvatory knowledge, and the view that matter is evil and spirit good, the motions of the stars govern only the elemental world, leaving the soul free to choose between the good and the evil. Man's ultimate goal is to attain emancipation from an astrologically dominated material world. Some astrologers, such as the Haranians from the ancient Mesopotamian city of Haran, uh, and the Hindus regard the planets themselves as potent deities whose decrees can be changed through supplication and liturgy or through theurgy. Theurgy? Man, I don't know how on earth Siri keeps going off, but whatever. Uh, the, back, back to the article, sorry. <laughs> so the science of persuading the gods or other supernatural powers instill other... Uh, interpretations, e.g. that of the uh, Christian Priscillianists, followers of Priscillian, a Spanish aesthetic yeah, sure, <laughs> of the 4th century who apparently held dualistic views. The stars merely make manifest the will of God to those trained in astrological symbolism. So, I get that people don't understand why things happen and people want an answer but it's perfectly okay to say i don't know like just because somebody does something evil or good or something happens you don't necessarily need to know why like there doesn't have to be a i mean it, it does appear in the universe i should say that uh everything does have that you know th there's cause and effect effects are caused by causes and causes can also be caused by other causes and you know it's it, it's infinite regression but I, I guess uh to not lose you down a rabbit hole here um you it, it's perfectly okay to say i don't know you don't have to have an answer for everything and i don't think anyone's expecting you to but by coming up with this stuff and claiming that it's the answer i think is dangerous um, I have much more respect for somebody who says I don't know than to somebody who tries to come up with something on the spot. And I get that people of the time uh, saw uses for astrology. You know, when you have white girls now running around with their astrological signs and, oh, I'm just a Scorpio or whatever. It's like, no, you're just crazy woman. But you don't have to have the answer and that's okay that's perfectly okay um because astrology is pseudoscience there is no mechanism by which it works there is no repeatable testable way to show that it works you can't sit here and uh, with certainty tell me what will happen tomorrow or what will happen the next day. You can make general vague uh, ideas, which I guess if you look at a, uh, a what are they, a, a horoscope is what they call yeah, them? Yeah, it's a horoscope. Get your daily yeah. horoscope from the newspaper. Yeah, right? I mean, I get that there are people that enjoy this kind of stuff, and there are people that are 
uh, I guess you would say more spiritual or whatever. Um, but people, I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, but we can only prove that the material world exists. And, and even then, that's kind of shaky. Because who's to say that we're not brains in a jar being stimulated somehow into thinking that this is all real? Just because I can feel and see things, does that necessarily mean they are real? No. And that's... that's Talk a to weird schizophrenic about that one. Yeah. Um, but I think you get what I mean. So, I think astrology is... Uh, I think it's time for it to die. I think people need to stop putting stock in pseudoscience. Embrace real science and stop believing in things that have no basis in reality so that's all i got to say i think it's an antiquated pseudoscience i mean i'm, I'm pretty on board with you there I and mean, I, I i think nowadays it's it's regressed into just being kind of a novelty and uh people mostly do it for entertainment i i don't think a lot of people actually take this seriously um which it's as it should be, because uh, again, it's been around for quite some time, and there's been really no one to come forth and explain the mecha like mechanism or some sort of modality to get you know a repeatable process for this. So, yeah, I mean, I think if I mean if you want to you know ascribe to astrology and you, you find it fun yeah go for it i mean if you think that you can only date a leo because you're some other astrological sign cool you're just limiting your pool of people that you could be compatible with but good on you for believing in something so that's about all i gotta say about that yeah and uh like i said if you have listened this far uh like comment subscribe thanks for hanging out with us all right, welcome everyone to our fifth segment of this week's podcast. And for our first segment of my topics, I would like to talk about, um, well, our businesses and the uh, the impact that that kind of all this, you know, the presidential election and COVID and everything is 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 having on our businesses and what kind of the positive and negatives could come out of this spoiler alert it's a lot more negative than it is positive in the in the in the short term depending on how we go about this so we have an article that kind of you know pertains to um you know companies and companies reliance on its actual workers and you know the human aspect of a company and how that's you know going to affect the future um before we get into that i'd just like to kind of lay out the groundwork of during this whole COVID process and the presidential election, we've been uh, rather harshly reminded of just how valuable that human labor is in, in, in a lot of companies and how pivotal that it is. Not, I mean, not to mention our, our human consumers. You know, robots aren't buying things. Uh, a a tree is not going to buy something. And doing things like we've been doing the past couple of months have been severely impacting businesses ability to make money and therefore pay their employees you know businesses that you know have, have been shuttering because of all this so we're going into this next stage of our country 
and the world in, in, a, in a broader sense. And we're throwing around the ideas of more lockdowns. We're throwing around the ideas of, in case you haven't heard of some of uh, our potential president, Joe Biden's, uh, I guess his, uh, his stances and some, some things he wants to get done of like a $15 minimum wage and things like that. And just how they're going to affect these businesses and by, by proxy, those employees. Uh, and I can tell you, it's not going to be good because when you think about it, you know, everything has a consequence. And if you are going to, you know, try to pursue the, the noble path of, paying people more, you know, such as the $15 minimum wage, uh, which they say they came up with the $15 minimum wage being like the minimum livable wage for your average person. Uh, I also find fault with that in, in a, uh, a sense because not every state's the same. $15 goes a very, very different way depending on what state you put the person in i mean in california 15 dollars is next to nothing that's probably the equivalent of 725 here in kentucky so um i don't think federal minimum wage is a good idea not to mention the kind of the elephant in the room when it comes to this minimum wage stuff is if you now tell mcdonald's that it has to pay its employees to make burgers Fifteen dollars an hour. Well, they're either going to have to jack up the price of your burger to compensate, or they're going to have to sell exponentially more burgers somehow, and you know eat the cost for a little while. But hopefully, their profit makes up for it in the end. Which that's an extremely long ball scenario. Or they're going to have to cut down their staff and just have a skeleton crew essentially for most of the time. Or what I think is more than likely is they're going to dump a lot of their excess money into robotics businesses, essentially, and have them develop robots that are going to take over these jobs. Uh, You heard people back in the day complaining, you know, immigrants are taking our jobs. Robots are going to take our jobs a lot easier. Okay, it's going to be a a very seamless transition. You'll find out. Because creating a robot to do simple tasks is not difficult at all. They've created robots that can play badminton better than a professional. They so gerbs. They're taking our gerbs, or they're going to. Um, companies would rather not, because there is maintenance that comes with this, and there is the uh, the negative social stigma that would come with them displacing, you know, thousands of workers um, and replacing them with, you know, robots that don't take home a paycheck to their families. There would also probably be some government intervention at first. But if you force their hand and make them pay $15 for someone to flip a burger, um, they're not just going to sit there and take it. And they're not just going to shudder. They're going to do what they can to to thrive and to make profit. I mean, don't don't underestimate the capitalist machine. I mean, it's there to, to boost and you know, provide an incentive for innovation. People get really mad at these uh, corporate bigwigs for taking, you know, a huge slice of the pie and paying the the average worker crumbs, which happens in, in, you know, a lot of the case. But, I mean, capitalism is also the thing that provides the incentive for people like you and me to want to start our own business and 
and make a name for ourselves. Or if you work for a corporation, that's the reason you're doing overtime and trying to push harder because the harder you push, the more you get. I mean, the effort you put in is what, is, is what you're getting out. So this is going to be ridiculously bad, uh, I think. If, if they actually get that pushed through, personally, I think Republicans will you know, put it down a little bit, keep it held up. I don't think it's actually going to get a full nationwide $15 minimum wage, but I'm just going to just, just want to throw this out here to people in that just, just think about what, like what they're asking for and what they're trying to do. I know it sounds great to give people a good wage to, to like give people something they can live off of and be comfortable off of. But I feel like people just don't think about the repercussions. You can't just give people money and expect everything to still be the same. If everyone has that much money, you expect bread prices to be the same. You expect gas, like gas prices to be the same. You expect milk prices to be the same. Have fun paying $10 for a gallon of milk. I mean, it's not going to be the same because you changed a variable. It's, it's, it's simple scientific method and math. It's you change a variable. You're going to get a change, change in the answer. So I don't know what your take on, on this is, Mike, before I ramble on too long. Well, I think the idea of the minimum wage and all that kind of stuff, um, I think we should stick a pin in that and uh, revisit that because that, that could be a whole segment in and of its own. Um, but I understand how it all plays into this. Um, and I think uh, as far as companies moving towards automation um i think you're right i think uh if they if they play with this minimum wage too much um you're you're going to force their hands and they're going to have to make decisions that they might not necessarily want to right now they might have to uh you know start replacing people with robots um but i also think that they want to do that anyways eventually um because you boil a frog by doing it slowly you gradually raise and raise and raise the heat and before the frog knows it he's dead and boiling alive so i think that i I think that automation is a huge issue for american workers i don't know how to fix it though um i'm not sure what she would do but one of the things that uh I'm guessing why you brought up this article was uh, resilience of businesses is a big thing. And if you suddenly, uh, a lot of businesses, one of their biggest expenses is payroll. And if you suddenly tell a business that they have to drastically increase the cost of payroll, there's only a couple things they can do. They're either going to have to cut money from somewhere else, cut staff, cut hours, or they're going to have to raise prices. So a lot of businesses I've seen when faced with issues like this of raising minimum wages, and, and we've seen this across the board in a lot of places, um, when, the minimum rate, wait, when the minimum wage is raised, we see prices go up, which effectively reduces wages. Um, so I don't think it's a good idea to have a minimum wage necessarily. I also don't think you should be paying people dirt. Um, But, you know, 
COVID's caused a lot of problems for a lot of businesses. So uh, you provided this article. So uh, let's just jump into the article real quick and see what see what it has to say. Uh, so this is on Forbes, uh, as I'm sure you're, you guys are aware. So uh, the COVID-19 pandemic has been a test of business resilience for many companies when thinking of what business resilience means, such as creativity, agility, tenacity, and innovation come to mind for Jim Powers, Chief Executive Officer at the accounting and consulting accounting, consulting, and technology firm Crow. It's difficult to instill those values during a crisis, Powers says. Uh, at that point, your team might be more focused on missing uh, what they were once able to do rather than finding solutions to the problems at hand. However, integrating those values into the company culture from the beginning has served Crow well over the years, he adds. Uh, for companies navigating today's uncertain times while simultaneously preparing for the future, leaders at Crow offered insights on the role that company culture plays in building business resilience. Here are some of the steps companies can take. Create an empowerment culture. Uh, sparking the creativity and innovation that carries companies through crisis periods and into success starts with creating a work environment that supports its people. Uh, Power says, the culture of agility and empowerment that Crow has established enables our personnel to serve its clients even when they can't travel or meet in person as they once did, uh, he says. Trust is also important. With Crow's flexible and remote work arrangements, we trust that our employees uh, will handle their responsibilities how and where it works best for them, Power says. We're focused on what we can do and don't spend a whole lot of time worrying about what we can't do. Find a way to do it, Power says. Your clients need you more than they ever have you've got to find a way to be there for them um honestly this is incredible business advice if you really think about it um a lot of a lot of what happens nowadays in the business world if you're not able to adapt you go the way of the dinosaur um it's just like evolution in nature you have to be able to adapt to a constantly changing environment um and covid has brought with it so many changes to the way business is performed. Um, it's really quite incredible that anyone's able to survive, uh, you know, given the economic destruction that's been wrought by these lockdowns. So uh, I really do think this guy is speaking words of wisdom here. So back to the article here. So uh, measuring business resilience can be difficult uh, but power points to metrics such as client engagement client retention and employee retention as markers to watch companies also should keep track of innovation via the new products and solutions that are developed and brought to market he explains another indicator for companies to monitor includes client payments keeping an eye on clients timely payments gives a sense of their future sustainability says bob lavoy partner in consulting services at crow Echoing powers, Lavoy emphasizes the importance of valuing employees. Our people are our biggest asset. Whether value, uh, whatever value our people are adding in the market is how we drive value as an organization, Lavoy says. Monitoring employees who are not using paid time off or are using more sick leave than usual can help companies understand how employees are persevering through challenging times, he adds. Resilience is all about the people. Everyone's going through a different journey right now, but we're all going through it together. Uh, cultivate a broader talent pool. Uh, one of the lessons the pandemic has taught many companies is that employees can remain productive while working remotely. Um, and I think this is totally true, by the way. Um, I've been, uh, I just recently started a new job uh, about six weeks ago, and it's been entirely 
uh, remote. I went into the office the first day, got my supplies, got my computer, uh, got some login information, and they sent me packing. They told me to go home and work from home. Um, and I'm not 100% sure if I like working at home yet or not, but it definitely seems more uh, convenient. I can get a little bit more sleep because I don't have to wake up so early to try to get ready to go into the office. Um, I don't have to worry about what I'm going to wear. I can wear my PJs and work. Um, I mean, you don't have to wear anything at all and you can work. Um, you know, I'm not using webcams or nothing. So it's, uh, I think working remotely, uh, if, if, if anything, COVID has taught businesses that you don't need office space. You can send people to work at home. Um, now, I do think that this is going to cause a very uh, unanticipated problem. I think that we're going to find that as more and more companies send people home, uh, I think there's going to be another uh, marketing bubble as far as uh, real estate goes. Because a lot of companies are going to decide, we don't need these buildings anymore. And they're going to end those leases, they're going to end those those rental agreements or whatever. And uh, it's going to cause a lot of property to go on the market all at once. Um, so I think... Uh, in my in my honest opinion, I think that in the next couple of years we are looking at an unprecedented real estate crash. As far I as commercial real estate goes, commercial. I I should specify that. Yes, I don't think your house is going to drop thirty percent value in like a year. I I don't think it's going to happen. No, if anything, I'd imagine as we move more and more to working remotely, I would imagine the value of homes would actually go up because you're going to find an increased interest in homes that have extra rooms for a home office space. Um, so if anything, I think uh, private real estate, uh, I think this is going to, uh, or residential real estate, I think this is going to increase the value. But I, I really do see a commercial real estate bubble looming in front of us. I this is actually one of the major things that I thought about as well. And I'm, I'm really glad you and I were thinking the same way on this, is that this is going to create a major rift in how and like the way business their businesses currently think about how they're doing business. Um, a lot of them are going to see that, Hey, I, I don't need to be paying these gigantic overheads for all these buildings when I can let people, you know, either choose or tell them to work from home now. And most people are going to be okay with it. Personally, I don't see businesses completely getting away from uh, having, you know, headquarters and having like at least a building in every city they're active in. Um, I just think that's going to be a standard thing because whenever you want really important meetings, you want it face to face. Whenever, you know, if, if you need to go to the office, you need to have that av availability for people. But I don't think you're going to see businesses that come to these small towns, build 20 buildings, employ the entire town. I don't think it's going to be like that anymore. I think they're going to more centralize. Um, and also, I, I do think you're right in that, you know, that that's going to lead to a commercial real estate bubble. Um, and I I do think that could be negative and those prices could crash and it could cause some grief for some people, especially real estate investors and real and uh, real estate companies. But uh, that does lead to a very unique opportunity that hasn't really presented itself in you know the last decade or so in that you're going to be faced with possibly this, this commercial real estate that's, that's fairly prime could be chopped up into smaller you know subsections and you know leased out to to smaller startup companies so they can actually have floor space and want we'll to pay an arm and a leg for non-premium floor space well they'll ne you know they'll they'll never get any foot traffic or 
nothing good will come out of it. And they could be put into some very, very prime real estate for not a lot of money. And it could really help small businesses grow. Well, I know we've uh, toyed with the idea uh, of opening a land center one of these days. And uh, if there's a commercial real estate bubble and uh, prices crash and uh, we ever come up with the capital to actually do this, um, I think that would be a golden opportunity. If we could get a nice, I mean, we don't need a huge space, but we need a nice big space. So um, I'm, I'm hesitant to say that this is going to be a good thing um, because just look at what's happening to New York. Companies are fleeing. Residents are fleeing. Um, there are lots of problems with something like this, but uh, I think it remains to be seen. Um, and, I, and I think you guys get kind of the idea of this article. Um, businesses have to, you, you have to outmaneuver your competition. You have to do better. And I think working remotely, uh, I'd be interested to look into some, uh, some statistics about it to see how it actually affects productivity. Um, but I would be willing to bet dollars to donuts that you'll actually find that people are more productive when they're at home. Um, you're in a comfortable environment. You're not dealing with loud coworkers, uh, unless you're like me and you have birds and they <laughs> yell at you. My my birds are very needy, so please no one no one think I'm abusing my birds. They uh <laughs> they just demand attention a lot, and if I don't give them the attention that they crave, uh they yell at me. And they're, they're sun conyers, so it's kind of par for the course when they do that. I look for but, these studies every day, though. Like, I'm really interested in seeing this data come out. Uh, and just, just from where, you know, the the business that, that employs you and I, um, or you and me, rather. I just use that improperly. And, anyway, um, I'm out of English class in high school. Anyway, so <laughs> our, our business, I have actually, since I am in the automation side, and I, I do a lot of, a lot of analytics, um, I have seen our product, productivity go up markedly uh, and it's not just a fluke it's it's big enough to be considered an actual st you know statistical fact that our productivity has gone up and uh what i found the most i guess the most shocking is uh voluntarily people voluntarily working overtime people don't have nearly as much of a problem working overtime when they're working it from their own house. Uh, I don't know whether that be because, you know, they don't have a commute time anymore and they could use that extra time to work overtime. Or if it's because, you know, if you work enough overtime, you don't have to sleep in the office. Now, you know, your bed's down the hallway or something. Could be in your room, but, you know, it's just I mean, that's notable. Um, a, a bit of anecdotal evidence uh, for that. Um <clears throat> My wife also works for the same company that we do, and uh, I believe your wife does too. That um, she does. But uh, what we have, uh, something that's interesting is uh, my, my wife has always been okay with working overtime, but she never wanted to work too much of it because it, it does eat up into your time. You don't get to come home as early. Uh, it really lessens the amount of time you get to spend with, with your significant other. Uh, but when you can work the overtime from home, uh, it kind of removes some of that barrier. You know, if I clock off at 5 o'clock, I can go ahead and make dinner, or she can make dinner while either of us continues to work. So it really, 
uh, it really helps streamline things because she's working about, uh, on average, she's pulling 20 hours of overtime a week. I'm not going to lie. We're making more money now than we ever were. Uh, COVID's been nice to us. Um, I know that's not the case for everybody. Uh, just anecdotal evidence here. But, uh, um, yeah. So quick story time here, actually, just a, just a funny story from uh, my, my early days uh, yeah, in, go for it. In, in the business. I had a, uh, a boss. He was he was pretty young, um, but he was a workaholic, man. He was driven any problem. He wanted to get it fixed. He would do whatever it took. And this is who I learned from for a couple of years. But uh, I was paid hourly, so I wasn't allowed to, to do some of the extreme things that he would do. Um, so, you know, a few hours, you know, of overtime a day and I was sent home because they didn't want to have to pay me, you know, an arm and a leg, but he was on salary. So fast forward, maybe f- six months into our work relationship here. And we had a giant problem come up one night. He was working hard on it. I told him, you know, I hit my overtime cap, so I had to go home. He, you know, it's like, okay, you know, all right, I'm going to stay here a little while and I'm going to. I'm going to try to fix this before I go home. So fast forward the next morning, I come in at like 5.30 in the morning because um, that's like the earliest my my swipe card would allow me to get in the building. So I was going to you know, try to f- pick up where he left off. I come in. This man had went out and bought an air mattress on a 15-minute break and was sleeping on the floor of the office because he had been there all night working on this problem. And I opened up our our group folder and realized the last entry uh, entry he had logged in had been i don't know around four in the morning so he'd only been asleep for like an hour and something so people like this are going to be the true beneficiaries of working from home these people that are just so driven to fix problems and love what they do so much that they willingly will do this for hours and hours and hours and granted he has a wife and kids at home but luckily his wife is a stay-at-home mom and she understands he's a bit OCD and kind of neurotic when it comes to work. But these people are going to benefit a ton because you're not going to find these people being office hobos. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that, that, that's kind of amusing, if anything. Um, but I'll be honest. I think I've said about all I could on, on the topic. So uh, if you have anything else to add, go ahead and add it. I've done all my ranting for now. I still have more more segments coming up. <laughs> all right. So uh, if you've made it this far into the video, uh, like, comment, subscribe. Thanks for hanging out. Welcome back, everyone. We are now on, I believe, our sixth segment of this week's podcast. And um, I just wanted to talk to you all and you, of course, Mike, about the potential student loan forgiveness that... Uh, the Biden administration has been toying with, and I think it was originally popularized by Elizabeth Warren, was the one who pushed it the most. Um, but it's I think, a oh, Bernie Sanders. I, I think that sounds about right. Yeah, Bernie was into it too, but I think Elizabeth Warren was the one who touted the the original fifty thousand dollars student debt uh, forgiveness. So I just wanted to dig in on this a little bit. We're going to use this article as more like a reference as opposed to just you know talking about the article. Um, cause I think every, anyone who's watched the news should be well aware of what they're trying to talk about. Um, so right now we have the Biden administration, their current, as, as far as I'm aware, their current, uh, standing on this 
was that they wanted $50,000 of student debt forgiveness uh, for households that earned, I believe it was up to $100,000. And then for the people that landed between $100,000 and $250,000, they were going to get $1 of every $3 extra over that 100K they made, you know, forgiven. So, and then after uh, 250,000, it was going to cut off and you would get nothing. So there's a lot of things to unpack in this. Um, There's a lot of positives and negatives. And a lot of people are going to be able to see both sides of this because, you know, not everyone has student debt, but, you know, you could have some, but you could be like me, like, I don't have student debt, but my wife does. So we're going to get into this. So first thing that I think most people actually would think about this is how would they go about doing this? How do you just make debt go away? Because when you think about student debt, you've got to realize that what happens is, you know, student debt is federally backed. So whenever students are taking out debts from the college, they're actually taking out debts from the government. They don't owe the college anything. The college is getting paid from a bank that is taking on this debt and the federal government is backing this debt to the bank because i mean it's a it's a federal essentially a federal loan um so it's this giant chain of you owing the college money the college getting the money from a bank and the bank being guaranteed the money from the government so all these people essentially are holding ious on your education and until you you know pay up over the some people pay for like you know until they're 50 to pay out their student loans you could have hundreds of hundreds of thousands of dollars in student debt but until that money becomes realized and you've paid it it's essentially floating in the ether and someone has eaten that cost except for the college because the college gets paid from the bank so the bank and the government have this interesting relationship where <laughs> The government technically owes the bank or the bank money, but they don't actually owe the bank money. And the bank's eating this cost and just expecting to get the money from you um, at an interest rate, which I think is criminal. If the government's going to be backing these loans, you shouldn't be able to charge ridiculous interest rates. Uh, it just seems a little sleazy to me. Um, and it also really. Uh, incentivizes bad lending habits from these banks. So, I mean, you're essentially lending to people who have no ability to pay back this money. Uh, there is almost zero way that any, any student who takes out these, you know, ten twenty thousand $20,000 a semester loans could feasibly pay this money back in a reasonable time frame that you would give to a regular borrower. Um, but they expect you to do it, and uh, their, their rationale is it's backed by the government, and you have essentially your lifetime to pay it off. They do give you a payment plan, though. Anyway, uh, so um, there's this... A quick interjection right here. Um, when you say that it takes people a long time to pay these off, I, I can't stress that enough how true that is. Um, specifically what I do, I, I deal with a lot of uh, borrowers who are refinancing their home loans. 
And when I'm looking over somebody's debts, I can't tell you how many people I've seen that are in their late 30s, late 40s, early 50s, and they still have a substantial amount of student loan debt. Um, it's it's crippled a generation financially. It really has. So, I mean, this is... I, I understand the knee-jerk reaction to wanting to fix this problem. The case against student loan forgiveness, like should they be forgiven should they not i don't know i don't have that answer but i'm going to tell you right now we have to do something this is a problem that has festered for too long and you have to do something what that is i don't know and i'm not going to pretend to know um we're going to this speculate is, this though. is an issue we'll speculate sure um but but i want to i want to throw that back to you now um i just wanted to interject right there like this this is a bigger issue than people might think. Yeah, no underestimate, like no underestimating here, no understatement. It's it's a gigantic problem, and the fact that you can take out this loan whenever you're in, you know, eighteen, nineteen years old, even seven, you know, seventeen, sixteen. Sometimes you graduate early, um, and you essentially have no net worth, no value, no way to pay this back, and they're giving you this loan thinking that you will be investing it in skills that will, you know, net you a job that will pay you enough to pay back these loans. Um, well, that's if you go into a field that has the ability to land you a job that pays this much. So if you're going into, you know, I know it's kind of the, the, the right wing or conservative mantra whenever it comes to this, but you're going into like a dance theory or something. I don't think you're going to be getting paid enough to pay off these loans. I mean, if you're going into like social work, a lot of the times, same thing. I mean, it's these, these are fields that don't pay a ton of money. And a lot of people who do them aren't doing it because they want to make a ton of money. People just like what they like, but charge or uh, colleges are charging blanket amounts for everyone. So again, that's a problem that needs to be addressed. And the assumption that you're going to land a job that's going to make you enough money or you're going to land the job that's the average salary or you're even going to land a job at all is a complete just leap of faith on both your side and the side of your lender. Because just a, a college degree is no guarantee you're going to land a job or no guarantee that there will be enough jobs out there for someone to land it. So now we get into people have made these decisions, have taken on student debt, and now we have politicians talking about helping people get rid of this student debt, which there are many ways to go about this. And right now we have Joe Biden's administration talking about canceling $50,000 in federal student student loan loan debt um, just for, for everyone who makes under essentially $250,000. And that's at a prorated rate um, for people who make over 100000 so this is a solution. I mean, it's, it's, it's a potential thing you, that you can do. Um, it's just the money has to come from somewhere because the, the lender has to get paid. You can't just ask the lender to eat all this. Lenders will go under, and that'll cause more job loss. It, and it's just a cascade from there. So you can't just take, take away this, this number and magically make it go. Can't do that. Definitely. So. Where's the money coming from? Well, it's going to have to come from the government. Well, the government doesn't actually have any money on its own. Where does it get its money? It's going to come from us. Exactly. Uncle Sam's reaching into your pocket.
And Uncle so, Sam's putting the bill on you. <laughs> right. Um, I don't want to bury the lead here, and I do want to touch on this article a little bit, but I do want to go ahead and uh, just as, as a quick aside before we jump into the article. Um, and I know we're, we're like nine minutes in and we haven't even started reading the article. We're, we're, we're That's what I do, man. Um, but but this is this is a, this is a big problem. And one of the things that I find uh, very interesting um, for a time, I was working at um, uh, I was working down in Bowling Green, Kentucky, and I was working at uh, Western Kentucky University and WKU. Uh, they get federal grant money um, from the government and. Uh, it's based on a lot of different factors. I'm not going to go into all of them, but one of them is like retention rate. Um, the school, make no mistake, schools don't care about you. That's at least these for-profit colleges, um, state universities, all that, they don't care about you. All they want is that money because when you pay your tuition at the start of the year, they no longer have any interest in you. The school doesn't care if you pass or fail. They do insofar as their federal funding goes. So they might try to make it to where you don't fail. But the school has no interest in making sure that you are a marketable person. They don't care. They care about their sports and making money. So one of the things that I saw that was incredibly interesting to me was free colleges. Now, I don't think that you can make college necessarily free across the board. But I do like this concept. And I forget which university was, was doing this. But essentially what they've done... They don't charge you tuition, but what they do is they build you. Over the four years you're there, they build you up. They take a personal interest in making sure that you are the absolute best that you can be, that you have all of the marketable skills that you need, because what they've done in exchange for the free school, you have agreed to sign over a portion of your income for the next X number of years. So the school becomes financially vested in ensuring your success. I think the model that we have nowadays doesn't help students. It just gives you the money. It gives these 18, 19 year old kids who have no idea about anything in the world. It just gives them tens of thousands of dollars, says here, go into debt, go to school for a degree that you might not even make money with. So if you go to this school and you say, I want a feminist dance therapy uh, degree, they're gonna laugh at you. Why would they teach you for something that they won't make money on? But if you go to this school and you want to be an engineer, you want to be the greatest electrical engineer or a physicist or whatever, they have a financial vested interest in your future. This school will want you to succeed because their bottom line depends on it. So I think that that might be a good answer to some of this problem. Uh, but let's go ahead and jump into the article so we don't bury this lead any longer. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, it's been 12 minutes, so we've we've gone crazy. Uh, so Senators Chuck Schumer and Elizabeth Warren are calling on President-elect Biden to use his executive authority to cancel $50,000 in federal student loan debt per borrower at a cost of roughly $1 trillion. Uh, that might be the most expensive policy ever enacted by executive order. Biden himself favors a smaller loan cancellation of $10,000 per borrower, but this would still cost upwards of $370 billion. Um, so I'm not sure exactly what this metric is attempting to explain. Uh, is this attempting to explain the cost per 
uh, U.S. taxpayer. Because I'll be honest with you, if we canceled all stu- all federal student loan debt and it cost me fifteen hundred dollars, I would not be happy. Yeah, um, no, fifteen hundred dollars is a lot of money, and I've got my own bills to pay. If you've dug yourself into a hole, I'm sorry. Like you need to take some personal responsibility for the decisions that you've made. Um, but we'll, we'll we'll jump back in here real quick. So. Uh, as a general rule, executive orders are not a great way to make policy. I, I totally agree. Um, a move by Biden to unilaterally cancel student debt would invite a deluge of lawsuits and poison any chance for bipartisan cooperation on higher education reform in Congress, which, by the way, I do believe we need higher education reform, but Completely. that's a topic for another day. We, we've talked about that enough. Um, moreover, it all might come to naught if a judge rules that the president lacks the statutory authority to forgive loans in mass. I don't think he can. Just because you make an executive order doesn't mean that it's constitutional. Um, and I think that something like this would go to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court would just say no. Because what, author- what, what constitutional authority does the president have to forgive loans? Where, where is that stated? I, I think that's overreaching. I think you need to rein in the executive a little bit. But back, back to the article. Um, But even leaving legal questions aside, there are several reasons to oppose mass student loan forgiveness on pure policy grounds. Uh, The first one, it's regressive. Uh, The most straightforward argument against the mass uh, loan forgiveness is that its benefits are skewed towards the rich. The top fifth of households holds $3 in student loans for every $1 held by the bottom fifth, according to an analysis by the People's Policy uh, Project. In fact, that probably understates how regressive student loan forgiveness might be. Because many student borrowers in lower income quintiles are young and will probably earn more later in their careers. Uh, so this is just a, a chart to show you kind of like the uh, uh, how the fifth, which by the way is a quintile, um, shows you how uh, the student debt is distributed. So you have the bottom, the bottom fifth of society, uh, and, and I believe this is on an economic scale, mind you holds an uh, 8%, uh, the second quintile being 16, the third being uh, 23, the fourth being 30%, and the top quintile of society being 24%. So as you can see, uh, the wealthier you are, the more likely you are to have student debt. Uh, Now, please understand that this does not mean that a college degree is your answer to success. Look at gentlemen like, uh, I think it was Bill Gates and... uh, Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs is a college dropout. Now, now, also, don't please don't take me out of context here. Just because you drop out of school doesn't mean that you're going to be rich. You know these these men, whether you like them or not, they work their asses off. Can confirm. Yeah. Currently not rich. Yeah, I'm not rich either. I, I work my butt off every day, uh, and I'm. I mean, I'm not poor, but uh, I ain't well off either. <laughs> um. So back into the article. So why? Uh, Borrowers take on student debt to attend college, and people with college degrees tend to earn more. Uh, That is true. Um, Across the average, though. That's that's an average. So uh, just understand averages. Just because there's an average doesn't mean that everyone follows it. Um, Those with the most debt, 50,000 or more, almost exclusively have graduate degrees, which carry an even larger earnings premium. Nor does student loan forgiveness necessarily help students with low-income backgrounds. Students from rich families tend to borrow more than students from poor families, since wealthy students 
disproportionately choose expensive private colleges where even rich families must resort to borrowing. Uh, it's poorly targeted. Um, to be fair, the regressivity problem is one which some advocates of loan forgiveness recognize. For this reason, many propose limiting forgiveness to a certain amount per borrower rather than forgiving all debt. I can understand that a little bit better, sure. Uh, so this is better, but not, but still not an optimal policy. Government resources are scarce, so there is a finite amount of relief that Uncle Sam can distribute uh, through student loan forgiveness or otherwise. Out of 255 million adult Americans, just 45 million have federal student debt. If economic relief is in order, it's highly inequitable to distribute tens of thousands of dollars to the 45 million while the other 210 million get nothing. Absolutely. Underlying student loan forgiveness is the logic that people who attended college in the recent past are more deserving of government assistance than everyone else, which makes little sense. For the cost of forgiving $10,000 in debt per borrower, the federal government could instead cut every um, adult American a check for just under $1,500. Um, I don't want handouts. Sorry. <laughs> Um, moreover, people who attended college at all have been impacted the most by the COVID-19 pandemic and the recession. Those with only a high school degree have an unemployment rate of 8.1%, while people with college degrees have a jobless rate of 4.2%. As an economic relief policy, student loan forgiveness gets it exactly backwards. Um, I'm just going to come out and say, like, I dropped out of college. Um, I do have some student debt. It's nothing that's unmanageable. Um, I make my payments just like anyone else does, and I understand that I am the sole person reliable for this financial decision. Um, so, but I also, you know, even though I'm a college dropout, I do have a high school degree, and uh, I'm doing pretty well for myself, honestly. So, it won't stimulate the economy, back into the article. Uh, many argue for a debt jubilee as an economic stimulus response to the recession, forgiving loans will relieve borrowers of the obligation to make monthly payments. Full stop. Uh, the government isn't requiring payments on student loan debt anyways. So, uh, of, and we, we're not in the middle of an economic boom right now because of COVID. So I think it's completely uh, back-asswards, basically. Um, yeah, it creates the wrong incentives. I mean, I'm not... I'm not going to go into the rest of this article, but I do just want to touch on it and kind of explain, like, you know, this is this is a touchy subject, and I do not think that student loan debt forgiveness is correct. I think what we need to do, because these, uh, and, and this is actually something that I've heard uh, Tim Poole talk about, and I actually think it's not maybe not such a bad idea. Uh, so full credit to him that this is his idea, or maybe he got it from somebody else. I don't know. Uh, but just so you know where this is coming from, um, he said that a lot of these students have so much debt, they can't make their payments. They live in these, these big cities, and they can't afford anything. They can't hardly afford to eat. So what do they naturally think of? They naturally think of socialistic policies and communism um, so that they can offload their debt, so that they can be taken care of by the government. And we don't necessarily want that. These kids feel trapped. And I don't think outright forgiveness is the answer. But I do appreciate uh, Tim Poole's idea that maybe we suspend the interest. Um, you borrowed the money. You have to pay it back. That is 
absolute. I completely disagree with student loan forgiveness and, and just paying off people's money like that. Uh, it's different for like service members or public servants who have been injured or unable to pay them back like that. Those people service members are, earned it. I'm just putting it out right there. Service members, you earned that. Exactly. Um, but what we have here is uh, if we suspend the interest rates and just let people pay down the principal of what they owe, people will be able to get ahead. People will be able to chip away these loans. Um, before I was able to get my debt restructured, it would have taken me 60 years to pay off my debt. Now I'll have it paid off in about 10. So it's, it's a lot better. Um, my payments are less. Um, I don't have a predatory interest rate. So um, there's, there's a lot of ways that you can fix this. But if you, if you suspend the interest rates and you let people just pay down the principal of what they owe, you will be able to uh, to kind of maybe put a Band-Aid on this problem. Um, but what we've got going on right now with just debt ballooning and interest rates constantly skyrocketing, uh, it's untenable. And, you know, people who have already paid off their debts, you know, having paid the interest rates, I don't know what we do for those people. So... We'll just have to see and take this one day at a time. But uh, there's there's a lot of smarter minds out there thinking of solutions to this problem. Um, and I'll defer to them because I'm not entirely sure. But that's about all I got to say. So we established this is definitely a problem. And this problem is one of those that definitely warrants a solution sooner rather than later. Um, just speaking on a, pra on a practical and kind of like uh, a short-term view... Um, if the Biden administration does truly want to push this, if this is going to come to realization in the near future, I do think it's not going to be the full 50,000. Um, I think that is a, more than extreme and would not be agreed upon by either side, really. Um, I think if we see anything, it'll be more in the realm of 10 to 20,000 at most. Um, but I do think that if they they actually push through something like this. There needs to be a stipulation that, okay, we're going to, we're going to do a bailout basically this once, but coming with this bailout, there has to be reform. Okay. So we're going to bail you out once, but you got to fix the problem now. So it's this, this needs a lot more legislation behind it. This needs a lot more scientific data behind it. And this needs to be thought out meticulously. This is not something we can go, oops, we made the wrong choice. Just racked up a trillion dollars in debt on, you know, the worst case here. Um, sorry, that's not how this is going to work. No one's going to be happy with that. That's going to cause a lot of hardship for a lot of people. So I don't necessarily uh, disagree, but I don't necessarily want to see all of us who didn't go to Ivy League universities and rack up $100,000 in debt have to foot the bill for everyone else. So we'll see where this goes. Um, things will play out in the future. Everyone's going to be fine when it comes down to it. Okay, we're all going to survive. The sun's going to come up tomorrow. Um, we just have may have more problems to figure out on you know in those coming days. So, yeah. Uh, well put, I think. Um... So if you've 
held on this long. Uh, like, comment, subscribe. Thanks for hanging out. Welcome back, everyone, on to segment number seven of our week's podcast. And we are going to talk about something that Mikey has almost zero interest in and probably less than zero uh, former research. But this is something that I have looked into on a consistent basis, so let's get right into it. Um, testosterone replacement therapy has been kind of a hot-button issue in, well, that kind of a, the medical literature for yeah, probably about five years now, five, ten years. Um, you can technically in the U.S. get it prescribed by doctors. There are TRT clinics. Um, for people who meet the criteria and actually go through, you know, evaluations and such. Uh, I know in Canada, it's a whole lot less stringent and you can get TRT um, prescribed to you through a doctor pretty much walking into a clinic and just applying. Um, but let me back up a little bit. For those who don't know, TRT is testosterone replacement therapy. Uh, it was meant for Pete for generally older men whose testosterone production has kind of, uh, for lack of a better term, shit the bed and no longer maintains adequate levels to, you know, maintain sex drive and adequate muscle, muscle mass and density and uh, mobility and uh, energy levels. Uh, people who have low T, you know your energy levels are next to nothing and life is pretty miserable. Uh, it also leads to a lot of depression and stuff. So I think addressing this issue is actually really good um, for the aging population and even for younger people who maybe don't know that they have problems like this. But anyway, uh, this really came up because of my interest in bodybuilding and, you know, all those guys are juiced to the gills and taking exogenous testosterone. And, uh, well, you know, after you get through with your, your time in the limelight of uh, injecting yourself with uh, exogenous hormones you end up stuck on this. You end up stuck on TRT for the rest of your life because your body no longer produces testosterone on its own because you've been shuttling uh, super physiological doses into your body for years. So your body's just like, hey, don't need, don't need to do this anymore. Okay, one last thing on my list. Uh, you got this taken care of. So you are now reliant on a shot. Um, I, you know, Like I said before, this kind of happens naturally to a lot of men as they get older, their body just shuts it down anyway. Um, you feel terrible. But currently in the US, it is technically illegal if you get caught with testosterone and it's not prescribed to you. And um, getting it prescribed to you is not exactly the easiest thing in the world. And a lot of doctors just won't do it. Uh, they also don't know a lot about it. So I think this is another one of the problems that America faces that kind of needs to be addressed, kind of like our insane policies on marijuana and things like that, that we, you know, it's a schedule one drug. And I mean, just these completely un unfounded reasons that they give for scheduling things the way they do and making things hard to get. Um, this shouldn't be like that. So this should definitely be on like an actual public health care system. This should be covered by your insurances. Um, this would actually reduce the rates of depression and even probably suicide in uh, people with low T and older gentlemen. Um, and I just think it should be something you, you should be allowed to make a choice for. We, we both here are for personal liberties and uh, freedom to do what you want and make your own decisions. 
I think if you uh, if you're monitored by a doctor, this should be completely legal. Even if you don't have low T, I think you should be allowed to do this just because you want to do it. Um, I can go and, you know, get plastic surgery to make me look like James Bond, you know, electively, if I feel like it. May Doesn't not, mean to do it. It may not turn out too well either. But uh, I have the freedom to throw my money at a plastic surgeon and, and come out looking like a Ken doll. So... I think There's it's actually only a guy that's done that, by the way. I know, I saw him. He's it's uncanny valley status. I just want to show a picture of him. Uh, oh, there. I guess there's a couple guys that have done it. Um, wait, did he die or something? Did he die? No, I thought I thought I saw something say that he he had died. I was going to um, say that'd be tragic. But I mean, this this guy, uh, I saw an episode of, on him. Um, I think it was on like my addiction or something. He was on something. And uh, I mean, he doesn't seem like a bad guy. But like, this is just. God. And you're allowed to do this. I mean, I don't know how much money he spent. He, he took out a lot of debt to do all these plastic surgeries. Um, but he's allowed to do it. As you should be. You can do what you want. Yeah. Um, I don't know, man. It's just, you know, you can do what you want with your body. I'm totally okay with that. But there just comes a point where I think that uh, you need to focus on somebody's mental health. And this um, actually would help with mental health. I mean, and then a lot of the people, the main argument against people taking TRT is they think bodybuilder steroids, heart disease. And in this article right here, if, if, if you, you know, read through it, we'll, we'll put it in the, you know, the description box as to not read the entire thing, but it actually goes to suss out some, uh, some evidence that people put on TRT actually don't have an increased risk of heart, of, of uh, heart disease. They were taking older gentlemen as well. Of course, they took older men that didn't have pre-existing heart conditions as to not muddle the, the results. But they took these men, they put them on TRT, you know, the ages like early 40s to late 50s, and they didn't have any increased risk of cardiovascular diseases. They didn't have any problems with, you know, the cardio cardiovascular system. It's that that argument is completely bunk, in my opinion. I mean, considering also most of the, the medical uh, literature on cardiovascular disease and what causes it, uh, for the longest time, didn't take into the fact that we, you know, we as Americans and especially the populations that were in these studies, were eating garbage to begin with. So uh, we needed cleaner studies anyway, and I'm glad they're doing cleaner, uh, more concise studies. But uh, we just need to not demonize things that don't need to be demonized. Well, let's uh, let's jump into the article real quick, and I, I just want to focus on this, the latest findings part, because I just skimmed it and thought it was rather interesting. So uh, recent research has uh, supported this position, uh, talking about uh, TRT, um, which is the, the replacement therapy. Um, a study reported at the 2015 American Heart Association scientific sessions involved 1,472 men ages 52 to 63 with low testosterone levels and no history of heart disease. So this is exactly what you were kind of just talking about or alluding to. Uh, so researchers, researchers found 
that healthy men who received TRT did not have a higher risk of heart attack, stroke, or death. Uh, furthermore, a study in the August 2015 Mayo Clinic proceedings showed no link between TRT and blood clots in veins among 30,000 men. Right now, the jury is still out about TRT's influence on cardiovascular disease, says Dr. Hayes. Uh, TRT's relationship with other health issues is also mixed. For instance, TRT has previously been tied to a higher instance of prostate cancer. But a study published in the December 2015 Journal of Urology found that exposure to TRT over a five-year period was not linked to a greater risk of aggressive prostate cancer. Um, the bottom line is that the long-term risks of TRT are still unknown, as many of these studies have limited follow-ups. Does that not mean you sh that that does not mean that you should avoid TRT for a selected subgroup of men? The therapy can be a viable option. So, uh, when I think of low T, um, I think of well, basically these related articles. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think men with low T have lower sex drives. Um, they tend to have uh, possibly like excess estrogen. Uh, they tend to be fatter, uh, less energy all around. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's the case. No, you're you're perfectly right. Yeah. So uh, why 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 is something like this stigmatized? And why, why can't would... it be elective, like you know most of the things? I mean, if I'm not mistaken, I think. Uh, and please, somebody correct me if I'm wrong. Of course, but uh, when women have a uh, hysterectomy and they have their ovaries and uterus or whatever else removed. Um, if I'm not mistaken, I believe they have to go on hormone replacement therapy for estrogen um, because now your body suddenly can't produce as much, so you need to be on hormones for the rest of your life. So why, uh, why isn't this considered the same? Because that's the way I understand it, that's perfectly normal for women to get estrogen replacement therapy. So why is it... Uh, unusual for men to get it uh I, I guess i'm just not understanding this like is it uh because uh, something i noticed at the bottom of the article here uh so the manly hormone uh testosterone is the hormone that gives men their manliness produced by the testicles uh, it is responsible for male, male characteristics like a deep voice muscular build and facial hair uh, testosterone also fosters the production of red blood cells and increases bone density. Levels peak by early adulthood and drop as you age, up to a 2% per year beginning around age 40. Normal levels are between 300 and 1,000 nanograms per deciliter. Yeah. Uh, low testosterone produces several symptoms, such as impotence or changes in sexual desire, uh, depression or anxiety, Less energy, reduced muscle mass, weight gain, anemia, and hot flashes. What is a hot flash? Um, you never like been just kind of sitting around, and all of a sudden you just like get this like you just get blindingly hot, and you, you know, your your vision gets a little white, and like it usually happens when you're about to pass out. Uh, yeah, I I always attribute that to like heat stroke. No, I mean it's just a hot flash. A uh, heat stroke is from you know again. Uh, I think it should be pretty obvious, but heat stroke is usually from direct uh, sunlight and like being in directed heat. I gotcha. Okay. This is more an internal thing. Yeah. So uh, this is, uh, I don't, I don't understand why something like this would be uh, controversial. 
you know, maybe that just uh, maybe that just goes to display my ignorance of the topic. But yeah, uh, that's I'm where not... a lot of people's thing is they just don't know that it's you know illegal for the wrong reasons. Most people just assume that it's only things that people abuse. Uh, or things that should be, you know, prescribed by a doctor to someone who's got their, you know, testosterone production shut down because they're 70 years old. Um, but that's that's not yeah. the case. And that could help a lot of people with a lot of psychological disorders as listed down there and physical ailments. Uh, it needs to be looked into. And uh, I would like to have the freedom to be able to pursue this, you know, if I was having symptoms like this. Yeah, uh, so I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and say it. Um, talk to your doctor. If you're if you're experiencing issues like this or if anything, you know, just talk to your doctor. Um, Always. Yeah. You know, don't don't take medical advice from two idiots on the Internet. And uh, don't take medical advice from Harvard either, necessarily. Um, the only the only two people in the world that are going to know if something is right for you are you and your doctor. And if you guys talk about it and you determine that this is the right thing for you, then, you know, more power to you. Do it. Um, I think you need to take care of yourself. I think that's one of the biggest things that you need to do. Take care of yourself and your family. Um, I think that's what people need to focus on. People need to, people often lose, lose, uh, they lose track of that, I think. Um, but I'm not sure what else to say on this topic. Uh, this is not something that I know much about. Uh, I know, surprising. <laughs> me who normally knows a lot about everything damn near it uh this is something that i am completely clueless on i don't know much about this at all i just wanted to touch on this considering i know you and i both kind of see eye to eye on personal liberties and uh kind of the the extent of where our freedom should go and uh, i just kind of wanted to make the point and bring awareness to the fact that this is this is technically illegal uh to just get prescribed for no reason it, actually, it, it, it can actually get doctors in trouble for prescribing it for a good reason as well um and also a lot of doctors aren't really uh really versed on it and i think this is a huge oversight and it should be it should be remedied and the broader society going forward should be a little more open to uh the woes and the ailments of you know aging men that this happens to you and no it's not because you're just getting old and you're less manly um, you you can ease the symptoms of aging, and it it, it can really help you. Yeah, um, I think that's well put. Uh, if you're still here, uh, you know, like, comment, subscribe. Thanks for hanging out with us.